Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. in bed? Another glorious day in the Corps. Day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal is a banquet. Every paycheck a fortune. Every formation a parade. I love the Corps. Man, this floor is freezing. What do you want me to do? Fetch your slippers for you? Gee, would you, sir? I'd like that. Look into my eye. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Podside Picnic. Uh, today is a very special episode for us because we're, well, we've got two things to be excited about here. The first is that we're going to be talking about Aliens, and if you haven't seen Aliens, hit stop and go watch it. I'm embarrassed for you. Secondly, we've got Will Meneker here as a guest with us. Will Meneker is one of the hosts of Chapo Trap House. It is a uh, leftist comedy and politics podcast that uh, I listen to twice a week. And, you know, honestly, you should go listen to that, too, before you listen to this episode as well. Go um, back and listen to all 300 episodes uh, now. Yeah. <laughs> you will develop a genius brain if you do so. <laughs> uh, boys, uh, it's great to be here. Um, uh, we're on an express elevator to hell right now. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, man. You know, this kind of happened serendipitously because – I noticed you faving my tweets about aliens, and I was like, you know, I know Will loves this movie because you've posted, like, GIFs of Hudson and other characters, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is perfect. So thanks so much for coming on. On that note, I guess I'm really curious, you know, when did you first see this movie, and how did it become important to you, and, you know, how has it stayed important? First of all, thanks for uh, having me on. Unlike my podcast, where everything I do, I'm mostly just winging it like everyone else is, coming on to talk about aliens, sci-fi, and sort of 80s action movies in general is one of the only things I am actually qualified to do. <laughs> so it's good to share, you know, an informed opinion for once. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a movie, you know, I saw when I was a kid, probably in junior high school, and uh, immediately became obsessed with the uh, colonial marines and all of sort of cool military science fiction style of this movie that I'm sure we can go on to talk about how widely influential that was. But yeah, this is just a movie I saw when I was a kid and has stayed with me ever since. I've seen it, you know, dozens of times probably. It still holds up. It's still good. It's one of the best sequels of all time. That's where it was for me. Okay, well, let's... Sorry, Will. I'm one of those people that can't just watch a movie. Like, analysis has ruined everything for me. So immediately I watch Aliens and I pull my scalpel out. And the first thing I do is I, I'm very interested in the subgenre here. Connor seems to feel that dividing things up into genres is crap. But what would you say this film was? 
if you had to throw it in a category? Like, you know, sci-fi action, military science fiction, um, making the transition from the first movie, sci-fi horror, to a sci-fi action hybrid. Yeah. Okay, now I'm excited because that's my take too. But when you go from alien to aliens, you're basically switching subgenres. Do like is that is that a thing for this particular writer or is it cuz I can't think of another person who can do this besides Cameron. Yeah, no, I mean uh I think I oh, was it uh Dan O'Bannon uh was the guy who wrote Alien and he he wasn't involved in this, so yeah, this is one of the better examples of, you know, someone new taking the source material and ex- sort of expanding the universe and style of it in a way that still feels completely coherent with the original film. Despite, like you said, having a kind of subgenre uh, shift in the sequel to like the sort of the big action blockbuster where, I mean, it's the perfect title, you know, Alien to Aliens. It says it all. It's like you saw the first one. There's only one of them. God damn, that was scary. Imagine uh, if there's lots of them. Right, and I think there's a lot of really interesting uh, things that drive that shift and become apparent in the story that will also allow you to sort of dig into the historical moment. One of those, of course, is we actually did a exclusive episode about Aliens. We have picked that movie apart recently. The we singular, talking, you mean? Oh, the, the first yeah, one, you mean? The first one, yeah. Yeah. And we sort of dug into you know, that as a movie about labor relations because, of course, the, the Oh, absolutely. About, yeah. They get their blue collar workers who don't want to be in the situation rather than brave explorers and they get hosed by their corporation. Right. And, you know, we located that movie in 1979, kind of right at the end, the very end of the heyday of American uh, labor. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And- like, right. Right. For the dawn of, of the Reagan era and sort of introducing like the sort of post, you know, like post 70s, like after uh, all the good times and good vibrations and radical possibilities of the 70s had sort of petered out. And Alien uh, in particular, like in Ridley Scott and that and Blade Runner really established this kind of vision of the future that was uh, dingy and kind of run down and, and, and looked uh, physical and, and sort of like our own timeline. There was no sort of gleaming, sleek vision of the future anymore. And Cameron took that as well. And I think to understand Aliens, you really have to place it in the context of the 80s action genre in general, these sort of quasi-fascist movies of the Reagan era that all either – consciously or not, we're attempting to deal with getting over Vietnam and and winning again. And yeah, like a a proto make America great again kind of message that, you know, all that shit in the 60s and 70s that like we're the bad guys. Like, no, we're bringing America back with like big muscles, big guns and lots of homoeroticism. And Aliens is a movie that not so subtly attacks all of the macho sort of right-wing content of 80s, the 80s action military movies, but does it in a way that it's still a perfect example of the genre. Like, it's not just like a self-aware, subversive attack on a genre. Like, it's a great example of it, and it's also a really fun, awesome action movie. So it's kind of Verhoeven. Yeah, it's not, it's not, I would say like, you know, Cameron is obviously not as like, savagely self-aware and political as Verhoeven is, but um, it's unmistakable that Aliens is a movie that shows you all of this cool military technology and makes you love it. And I still do. It's like one of the most um, memorable things about the movie, the kind of the 
the, the weapons and the spaceships and shows you all these macho guys, perhaps best portrayed by uh, Bill Paxton's character, Hudson, you know, the, the just dumb uh, jarhead who's just like, show me something, show me, show me something to shoot. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit about these aliens. Fuck them. And then, you know, like in a kind of uh, Vietnam allegory, uh, just throws them into the meat grinder and like none of their training or technology matters for shit. And they just get owned and annihilated by a force completely beyond their control. I think what you said, Will, about this inhabiting the 80s action hero genre, but also subverting it is really interesting. I hadn't fully considered that. What I was going to ask you was, what's so interesting is the transformation of Ripley between these two films. Obviously, we already established that in the first one, Ripley, I think I said in the episode where you dissected Alien, she's kind of like the assistant manager of the grocery store. Like she's like a barely managerial level blue collar worker who's forced to be heroic by circumstances very reluctantly. And then in this one, she's also being drawn back into this pretty much kicking and screaming um, through sort of a complicated plot where, of course, the corporation blames her and she's being victimized for having done the right thing and all this stuff. And she gets dragged back into the situation where she has to confront the xenomorphs once again. Um, but what I do think is interesting is that as this takes us several years later into the, the beginning of the neoliberal era and the heart of the Reagan era, it's like, well, yes, all that is very astutely done. But at the same time, Ripley is going from being a pretty believable, real, real person you might meet to she does by the end become this action hero badass, right? Oh, yeah. She definitely, you know, goes full Rambo by the end of the movie. And it it is. You know, the, the change in Ripley like represents the change in these subgenres going from the uh, horror movie heroine, the prototypical last woman, uh, to an action hero. And I think I remember – I don't know if you guys touched on this, but I think Dan O'Bannon originally wrote the character Ripley as a, a man. And they were originally going to cast the, uh, the the lead as a man, but for I forget for some reason they were just like, oh, like why don't we just make Ripley a woman and here's Sigourney Weaver. And I can assume the two crying scenes they shoot shoehorn in when they change the gender, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and Pete and I still disagree about what the crying means, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I do think what's interesting is that I agree with you that it does a great job subverting this and uh, subverting the genre, commenting not only on Vietnam but on I, I would say probably American involvement in Latin America in the eighties. Which, hey, that's not relevant anymore. Thank God, <laughs> good thing that. that. Good thing that's yeah. all taken been taken care of. We don't have that, that's all over. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, well, the, it's it, the timing on this is kind of perfect, Will, because like uh, within the past month, you've done two episodes talking about Guatemala, just sort of randomly, right? But it this really felt like Wayland Yutani was United Fruit, and they set up a scenario in which the Marines would have to show up and get them a sample of these aliens. Was that your read, or was it just like a happy coincidence? Uh, I mean, it, it's unmistakable that in all in the first two movies, like the the bad guys of those movies are is the corporation, and it's like a very clear like uh you know colon they're called the colonial marines, right? Like so they're they're being used in ways not too different than you know as uh you know Smedley Butler called them gangsters for capitalism, um, and uh yeah like the it, it, the, the xenomorphs the aliens have no uh, morality to them. They're just scary, but they just do what they do. Like the evil is in Aliens, the yuppie asshole Burke, played by Paul Reiser, who lies to everyone and gets them killed because the evil corporation wants to use them as weapons, as bi biological weapons. 
You know, and as someone in high school at that time, the most surreal thing about this movie was watching it and then turning around and watching that stupid sitcom Mad About You that he was in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was because, yeah, you know, I remember watching Mad About You and Paul Reiser in, in, in movies and Mad About You is the prototypical, uh, he's the, always the nice guy. And then when you see him in Aliens as this um, uh, cowardly, sniveling rat, it is, um, it's a nice contrast. Uh, I mean, I, I guess the thing that I, I really struggle with, something I've thought about a lot uh, as – and actually one reason that we're doing this podcast <laughs> is I'm trying to change my relationship to – genre fiction broadly across media. And this, this seemed like a cool way to sort of do it systematically. And I think that I, I brought up the Ripley thing just because I struggle with, um, you know, what are you really instantiating, uh, when you have a character, whether they're resistant to it or not, that becomes so exceptional and they become such a supreme badass, especially when you're lifting them up out of sort of resolute ordinariness and alien. And that movie feels so distant in time and space because precisely because it's one of the last majorly successful Hollywood movies that really respects in a kind of effortless way, ordinary workers. And, you know, I just wonder like how, if you could break down even a little bit more for us, like, you know, if you think this film succeeds in not being reactionary by, even though it creates that exceptional individual that we're so wary of. And, you know, do you think that, I mean, do you think that that works or how do you think it works? I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's, you know, a, a a giant Hollywood uh, action movie, so I wouldn't say it is. I would say compared to uh, other similar films, it, it it certainly succeeds more than they do in not being reactionary. But you know, it's sort of like the question: like, are the uh, alien movies feminist because they have a, a female lead and that like she's a strong badass who like you know shows the guys what's what in Aliens? That's certainly there. I would say the movie is not reactionary in that it, I think it does consciously subvert all of the, you know, macho Reagan era action movies tropes, but I don't think like as such, or just like it's a, you know, left wing text. However, considering James Cameron uh, would later on to go, go on to do avatar, another military sci-fi movie that uh, explicitly makes the point that, um, uh, colonial troops and soldiers are the oppressors and uh, should be killed by indigenous peoples. Um, I don't know. You may, may James Cameron. Maybe maybe he's woke. Maybe he's uh, you know had he's discovered something at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really feel the need to essentialize this or anything else. Like I think that for to, for my life, for my mind, uh, Aliens is a pretty strongly anti-imperialist film. And I think there are also lots of great little touches about that because again, even in the brief scenes where you first meet the colonial Marines and they're getting out of cryostasis and they're just bantering and being themselves before they even go into combat, which is a pretty brief part of the film, but very memorable just because it's so yeah, extremely memorable. I remember like, you know, when I was a kid, that was like my favorite part of, of the movie is a scene where they get up and then you meet a Sergeant Apone, I love the core. Every day in the core, <laughs> it's like a day on the farm. Every formation, a parade. Every meal, a banquet. Yeah. Uh, also, can I get an R.I.P. to Sergeant Apone and Private Hudson? Al Matthews, the actor who played Apone, uh, died this year, and then Bill Paxton, uh, tragically, even before him. <sighs> um, Al Matthews left out of the uh, Oscars in memoriam real last really? night. Really? So. That is brutal. Oh, man. Yeah, that's he, not he right. He deserves better because that is like a pwn, especially for a guy who dies like basically at the end of the first act, like dies pretty quickly into the oh, movie. Oh, he dies pretty quickly. 
Yeah, he's like the, he's the grizzled uh, sergeant who's there, you know, the the leader in the field. And then when the first battle with the aliens just gets like annihilated right away. And that's when you know, like, OK, they're really in deep shit. And it's again, it's a Vietnam thing. Is it's like the reason he gets annihilated is because he follows the shitty, stupid orders. Oh, the, yeah, the awful, like, yeah, yeah uh, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, the, the yeah, the, the officer is always in like the, the rear yeah. yeah, they have like a very like a very recognizable Yuppie ROTC leader for this combat mission, and all the enlisted troops are like grizzled and cynical. And I, I brought it up partly to talk about like their their status as workers is made very clear because I think one of the first things that one of them says getting out of the cryo tanks is, "I hate this job." Yeah. Okay, this is a job. Yeah. We're not action heroes. We're doing our job, man. You know. I'd say in any other good uh, military movie, that guy gets fragged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, and like I and, and then in in the scene uh, where they, they their first encounter with the aliens, uh, where like half of them die, it's the it's the stupid uh, you know lieutenant who fucking panics and doesn't know what to do, and it's Ripley who has to save everyone. She has you know and takes over and drives the, uh, the that fucking cool ass tank um, into the I don't know reactor or wherever they are. And I thought that was such great writing because it's a great badass moment and a turning point for her as a character across the different movies. But it's also just like it's so rooted in her just her ordinary competence, just competency as a person. It's like she knows how to drive the equipment. She understands they need to get out of there. She understands how straightforward the situation is. It's not like the move, the James Cameron uh, produced movie we just reviewed, Alita Battle Angel, where it's not that Ripley suddenly discovers she knows extreme martial arts that no one else knows. It's like, no, it's that she can drive this vehicle and she knows the situation. And that's all she has to has to understand. You, you know? know, I love being on this podcast with you, Connor, because this is a moment of divergence. This is where I disagree because I have a crazy theory that wraps all of this up. Um, so, Will, I have were you ever a pen and paper or a tabletop gamer? Uh, I've, I've, I'm slowly becoming one later in life, but, um, yeah, yeah. Not, not as such as it was a child. Fair enough. Well, there's a, there's a number of games like Torg or GURPS where the idea is that different characters from different backgrounds are subject to different world laws. Like you might be from a horror realm and that means that you will die as soon as you do something that you can be judged by by an Old Testament God, because, like, those are the rules we have set up in horror movies mm-hmm. or, you know, that sort of thing. And this movie seems to have competing narratives like that. Like the uh, the uh, the Marines, when they walk in, they think they're in Starship Troopers and they act like it. And the, the world treats them like that until they land into Aliens Horror Land where things have a completely different set of rules and they get subsumed by it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and and I think that's the, uh, you know, setting up all of their, their, both their military technology and their sort of, you know, macho, uh, dumb guy energy. Um, yeah, like they, they, they land in a narrative that, uh, is governed by different laws and like going against, you know, all of the, like, uh, you know, the, the, the commando style action movie where it's like an American or in, you know, Arnold's case, an Austrian bodybuilder who's just like, you know, swole as hell, just on steroids, huge guns. And like, you know, no number of, you know, mostly, um, uh, Brown, uh, men in uniform can really just even hit him with one bullet. And like, all he just takes is just him with a machine gun, just mowing them down. 
And, yeah. uh, and in this movie, it's like, yeah, like the Xenomorphs are on another level. Like it just that, like that, just that feeling of like, you're fucked. Like there's no planning, no technology, uh, no training that's going to get you out of this or, or save you from this situation. Like none of it means shit. Yeah. Until Ripley gets attached to that child and goes like full Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Like it almost seems like it's three movies sandwiched together to me. I I don't disagree with you there, Pete. I, I oh man, I I almost like I almost make a a very similar but almost inverted move where instead of trying to tease out the different genres and set them in opposition to each other in this movie, I just think this movie does a really impressive job blending them all together at once and kind of almost inhabiting its own genre. Like the more that I think about this movie, the less. I'm actually apt to compare it to other things, although Will can correct me because I haven't gone back and watched like Terminator 2 recently. So maybe I'm overestimating its uniqueness. But man, I wish I certainly wish more blockbusters were trying to imitate this movie because it's a worthier uh, it's a worthier thing to inherit the legacy of than so much else. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems like I mean, talk about like a a bygone era when like this was a huge R-rated like action movie that a studio spent a shitload of money on, which they really just don't don't do anymore. Yeah, it's true. I think the yeah. last comparable like R-rated action epic that I can remember that was pretty good was Logan, and that was that was solid. I thought, but yeah, no, it's it's a it's definitely a bygone era. I mean, I remember reading about the making of this movie, and it was like reading out a different planet because I think if I'm not getting this wrong, I think they were filming in the UK. And they had a very strong uh, union crew of Brits who Cameron clashed with because he was used to like he really wanted to ask a lot of the crew. He's used to American standards. Yeah, he's uh, a, he's a tyrant and an auteur. Right. And actually, at, at some point when they were filming, uh, he tried to make everyone watch Terminator 2 because he'd already done that just to just to prove to them that he could do it. And the British crew was like, eh, fuck off, uh, <laughs> which I think. Well, is funny. they did make he did make everybody on the cast read Starship Troopers. I wow, know. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like when, when you started talking about it as that sort of film, it's like the, the bells start going off. It's like absolutely as intended. Huh. Yeah, that, yeah that, the military stuff. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously he's not um, he's not doing what Verhoeven's doing in, in Starship Troopers. Like he's giving you a movie that is pretty straight up. Like there, I don't think there's like – any kind of like the double narrative that or like double meaning that, that Verhoeven's doing, he's given you a straightforward, you know, crowd pleasing action movie. But I think one, like I mentioned, that does is not subtle and like, but not like beating over the head with like how it, it is going against type for the like Reagan era action movie. Right. And, and I think what's interesting is that the, this movie has had a profound cultural influence. Uh, and I think one of the most overt ones it's had is not so much on other movies as on video games because, Oh my God. Yeah. Like the entire, all the, like every like halo and pretty much like every first person shooter video game that came out after this is in one way or another, like borrowing from this movie. It is even, even yeah. down to individual sequences, like I feel like almost every, like you said, every sci-fi inflected first-person shooter I've ever played has has been influenced by the scene in Aliens when they first get to the the abandoned colony that's been attacked by xenomorphs, and it's like damaged laboratory. Yeah. Like they, they work their way through it very linearly, and there's a bunch of damage and stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah and then like of course with the uh, the the queen alien, like like the boss fight. 
The yeah, that's one of the that, 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 like that goes on, like you know, like when you think it's done, there's actually like no, like there's another tier to the boss fight. The boss takes a different shape and uh, comes at you a different way. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, like definitely, like Halo for sure. Like that, yeah, the that the Colonial Marine uh, aesthetic has had a very, very long afterlife uh, from this movie. And obviously, you know, as, as you said, you just saw uh, what is it, Alita. Cameron, um, you know, he's a candy guy. He borrows from like a, a lot of sources, like, you know, Harlan Ellison famously for Terminator, which I think he had to give credit to like after the movie came out because Harlan was going to sue, sue him. But, you know, he, he stole a lot of that look from uh, from manga and, and anime, but uh, he was the first one to really like do it in, in live action in a big American movie. And yeah, it has created a very, very long template of uh you know, a look for the, for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And gosh, if only, if only people had internalized a little bit more, the anti-imperialism of it, think of what might've been in American mass culture, but you yeah. know, here we are. <laughs> well, we have to oh, wait for, for avatar and then all of the avatar sequels, you know, we didn't learn the lesson of avatar, which is, you know, against, uh, us imperialism and, uh, uh, the, the, the war machine, um, so we're going to have to watch three or four more Avatar movies until we get the point. Yeah. And, well, uh, I wish you would hurry up and hands off Venezuela. Yeah. I was going to say, that seems like a harsh punishment, but if that's, what's going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that was the other disappointing thing, you know, Avatar, all of the, you know, military, uh, technology and, and look, uh, was very cool. But um, the Navi uh, suck shit. Everything about the way they look and their culture is annoying and stupid and defensive, unlike the uh, our beautiful, beautiful xenomorph and their perfect society. Right. Well, also, like, the difference in Cameron, like, depicting these cynical, wry, extremely practical and self-interested, but fundamentally very sympathetic colonial marines, for instance, or depicting Ripley – and the way that Cameron depicts uh, the good guys in Alita Battle Angel, which, again, I don't think you've seen, but, like, it is so cloying, so treacly. They don't have flaws. I mean, again, it's, it's, a, it's a movie that's aimed at the younger audience, granted, but it's still just, like, at what point is it is it inflating your own ego and being isolated and not hearing no enough that you start to think that, like, to be a good guy, to be a protagonist, you must have zero flaws and you must constantly beat viewers over the head with how great you are. Because uh, that seems to have really happened to Cameron later on in life. Jesus, you're you're making me angry about that movie just talking about it, man. <laughs> Ugh. Um. Hey, could uh, could we talk about something a little crazy here? I um I have a theory about the Aliens movies that is probably not true, and I wanted to share it and, well, one, get Will's reaction, and to see if he has any of his own pet crazy theories about uh, films like this. Okay, go for it. Okay. So, um, when the first three movies came out, I was writing uh, basically like an exegesis of Beowulf, you know, the old, uh, whatever you want to call it, saga. And, the, you know, yeah, the 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 what was it the only the first Middle English literature that we have. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and it's divided into roughly three pieces, which is Beowulf fights Grendel, Beowulf fights Grendel's mother, and Beowulf fights the dragon and sacrifices himself to save everybody. And 
I was reading that and I watched Alien 3 and I'm like, holy crap, the first three movies of Aliens is Beowulf. Hmm. It follows the same narrative structure. That um, that scans to me, you know. I mean, uh, obviously the uh, the queen uh, is, is the, the the mother, the Grendel's mother. Uh, it, it certainly lines up. Uh, however, my only my only critique of it is I am going to slightly resist against any uh, reading of these movies of which in which Alien Three is uh, good at all. <laughs> Well, and I was probably one of the few people who got angry for this reason that Alien Four came out. <laughs> I, I, Alien Four also sucks, but um, I think Alien Resurrection is a better movie than Alien Three. Yep. I'm going to put my marker down. It's written by Joss Whedon, so it's of course insufferable, but uh, it's got a great cast, and there's a couple of very good scenes in uh, Alien Four. Yeah, yeah. Well, I loved her shooting hoops, and there was a lot of great murder. I'll give you that. There's some um, very good uh, gore in it, and there's some very weird, like Brad Brad Dorif moments, and just like very, very odd things that like uh, you sort of wonder how that made, ended up in a movie that presumably someone has spent tens of millions of dollars on. Whereas so, whereas Alien Three, I know there's all these different cuts of it out there. It's really hard for me to imagine there's a cut to this movie where it isn't just like two hours of just sweaty men in dark tunnels because that's basically all that's going on there. I think the ideal cut of Aliens 3 would be like the opening credits and the closing credits. Just like take a hatchet to everything in the middle. Now, I know you guys just did an episode on Neuromancer. Are you aware that the original Alien 3 screenplay was written by William Gibson and was never made? There is a draft of Alien 3. You can read William Gibson's screenplay of it. I'll send you guys a link of it. And it's actually uh, just been made, adapted into like a comic book series. Like someone has taken the William Gibson screenplay and illustrated it. Um, yeah, like, uh, you know, like to just, you know, show what the movie kind of guess would have been like. Wow. Pete, I think we have to do – we have to cover this. <laughs> yeah, we do have point. to cover this. Wow. Can we can – uh, It begins not- with uh, the, the Sulaco um, uh, passing through – um, some territory of space that's like actually controlled by like future space communists. So there is like an, there is an oppo- there is an opposing sphere of power in this universe that is like you know not the corporation, but they're like you know neo Marxists or something. That sounds really cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah, like the Bernie Nebula. I'm all about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I I would like to cover that, but I I am going to beg you, Connor. Can we not do three and four? Yeah, no, I, I so we're gonna step away from aliens uh, with movies, I mean, but I'm really movies, interested in the comics. Yeah, you know, if you're, uh, yeah, exactly. If you're doing a show about like, you know, what what is the, the you know necessary text of uh, genre, uh, you know, in 20th century America, Alien and Aliens are in there. Alien three and four, superfluous. Yeah, what do you what do you guys think about Alien versus Predator? Uh, what like the a movie was you know dog shit. I mean, it was, it, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was I, thirteen. I mean, come on, like from my childhood, Alien and Predator. You know, two of my favorite movies of all time. I think even Predator Two, very underrated, with uh, Danny Glover and Gary Busey, mm-hmm. um, and Bill Paxton also in Predator Two. Uh, you know, these are the these are the best monsters of my childhood. Like the most badass, you know, movie uh, villains. And you put them together in a movie and it's PG-13, foe out of here. 
terrible. Well, and I don't, I don't want to be this guy, but like the Dark Horse comics, I really enjoyed those for years. And then those movies came out and they were just steaming turds. So bad. Man. And, and not canon. Not canon. I'm yeah. glad that Pre- the Predator came up, though, because, of course, Predator is sort of a perfect contrast to this, where the, uh, the Green Berets. Like yeah. yeah, like a, a post Vietnam narrative of, you know, giant muscle military men uh, encountering something alien and uh, being destroyed by it. Right. Well, What's weird about the difference is like when you're dealing with with Predator, there's a certain amount of sort of Old Testament who's committing a crime thing going on because you have to be holding a weapon for the Predator to go after you. That's true. But aliens, they don't care. Like they'll latch babies to the wall. They'll 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 kill anybody. Yeah, I mean, they're uh, yeah, they're like the. Just this 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 biological force uh, that you know just cannot be stopped. It's like the perfect, like it's like the alien. The xenomorph is like anti-life because to like extend their life cycle, they have to replace um, a host, famously by bursting out of their stomach and chest. Yeah, and I, I love the sort of genesis of that mechanic, which we talked about in our alien episode, which is like very I, just. Uh, <laughs> Dan O'Bannon, I forget who he was writing the script with, but like they were apparently puzzling for a long time over, all right, at a very practical level, we have to get the alien on board the ship. And it just, it, it probably shouldn't just be it snuck on while they were looking. <laughs> and, yeah, and I guess Dan O'Bannon was like, had like a, uh, you know, he was out drinking or whatever. And he had just like a moment where he was like, oh, it should fuck one of them. <laughs> and <he told> it, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, Dan O'Bannon's great. Um, uh, he, he wrote Alien because like previous to that, he had uh, written starred in and done all the special effects for John Carpenter's first movie, uh, dark star, uh, which is a very good movie. Uh, it, 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 very interesting. Uh, like one of the special effects in that. And if you watch it, like they, they do get an alien on board their spaceship and it sort of almost follows like what he would do in alien. And that it's like, there's a guy, a lot of the movie is this guy chasing it around like ducks and sort of crawling through the recesses of this spaceship, except like the, the budget was so low that the alien was literally just like a beach ball bouncing up and down. <laughs> like, it's very, very budget, but um, some of, some of dark star is very cool, but it's mostly kind of a, like a kind of heavy metal style kind of stoner comedy it's like sort of you tried they tried to do kind of sci-fi comedy which is like you know so dark star is interesting it's worth watching but you know not entirely successful and it, it certainly wasn't you know in theaters no one really got it and dan o'bannon famously said of then going to work on alien well you know if i can't make them laugh i'm going to try to make them scream and just going full horror and it really landed. And I'm glad you brought up Carpenter because, like, when we were thinking about Cameron's recent work, we were talking about how – and I, I don't know, like, the arc of uh, – Carpenter, of course, is still alive and still works on various things. Um, he did have one of my favorite – to digress a little bit, one of my favorite recent quotes where someone asked him, are you going to direct, like, a bunch of more movies? Are you going to direct, like, The Thing too?" And he was like, well, if someone wants to give me money – uh, maybe, but you got to realize there's a lot of video games I want to play and a lot of NBA <laughs> games on TV. <laughs> yeah. Carpenter is, Carpenter is the best. Um, uh, I remember reading something about how Guillermo del Toro like took him out to dinner or something, or was at a, a party with John Carpenter. And of course, you know, 
being like, you know, Mr. Mr. Film nerd just wanted to wax on about how, you know, the thing is his favorite movie and it's like a masterpiece that, you know, changed his life. And, you know, what does it feel like to, to, to have, you know, created such a masterpiece and, you know, Guillermo is absolutely right about that. But, um, Carpenter, uh, you know, just basically kissing him off immediately where he was just like masterpiece. Like no one saw that shit. Like I didn't get paid any money for that masterpiece. Fuck it. I don't care. (laughs) Well, you know, what was in the theater when the thing was, it was in the theaters, right? E.T. Right. Yeah. I mean, and oh, it's God. like that's that's what people wanted. We were in the middle of a recession. Nobody wanted to see this gloomy everybody dies bullshit. And like now here we are and like I you couldn't get me to watch E.T. at gunpoint. But I would <laughs> watch the thing again right now. And that's exactly why the, the Camerons are, because of course Cameron has stayed in the game. Uh Carpenter has too to an extent, but it's like I see Carpenter as and the thing exactly is what you just said, the, the road not taken for blockbusters. If a lot – if blockbusters – there's so many blockbusters now that could be so improved by just embracing the pulp and being more like a John Carpenter movie. I think a, a pretty good example of this in the Marvel universe was Thor Ragnarok, which is – Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mean, gosh, if, if imagine if the thing had won that duel with E.T. Again, that's another like branching fork in the road. If people had gotten the anti-imperialism and aliens and they'd also gotten how much better the thing was than E.T., woof. This is what I'm going back in time to do. Uh, Baby Hitler is safe for now. I'm going back <laughs> to the 80s to try to make sure American uh, film culture, American movies and culture in general, you know, follow follow the left-hand path. You're going to assassinate E.T., huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, those are not walkie-talkies. Those are guns, and they're going to air hole his bitch ass. <laughs> Imagine a xenomorph just, like, tearing E.T. apart. That's <laughs> wild to think about. I, I would like, yes, uh, internet deviant artists get to work on that right now. I'm sure there are plenty of cartoons already of similar uh, thematic content. Uh, so, uh, Will, we have a, a gimmick that uh, we, we just made up this weekend. Uh, where I make book recommendations for guests of the show. Honestly, I make book recommendations to anybody who comes within 20 yards of me, so it's not a big shot. Uh, may I recommend a book to you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. There's an author named Tim Powers, and Tim Powers was basically Philip K. Dick's acolyte. Mm. And I, I, have, wrote- I haven't read him. Okay, well, I think you'd enjoy him. He wrote a book called Declare, which is a lot about um, like the the Cold War era spy stuff going on, particularly like uh, like the the whole British spy group getting turned mm. and actually working for the Soviet Union and that sort of thing. And his theory in this book is that all that actually the- happened, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Like, no, MI6, this, a, like the KGB got way, way. That was all like the the Le Carre stuff, but like uh, Ka- the Cambridge Five, Kim Philby, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Kim, KGB got real deep into British intelligence. It, Kim Philby's one of the major characters in this yeah. book, and the the ultimate idea is all of this stuff going on between the West and the East that looks insane at first blush is actually explainable by supernatural activity happening, <laughs> sort of just under the radar. Okay, uh, what's it called? Declare. Oh, declare. Okay. All right. I, I will put that in the queue. All right. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, uh, let let Connor know if you liked it because that'll, you know, that'll be points on the board for me. <laughs> Pete has, I mean, this is why we do this podcast. Pete has an unbelievable knowledge of sci-fi novels. So I, I trust his, I trust his opinion here. I want to ask you, Will, like, 
you did a great job breaking down aliens. I mean, what other sci-fi, we already mentioned like Terminator 2, what other sci-fi, whether in book or movie or video game form, is really important to you? Um, yeah, uh, like I, I, I told you before we started, like, uh, I did just re even before you guys asked me to come on, I did just of my own accord, just rewatch, uh, ter you know, Cameron's Terminator one and two, um, which was, uh, still very fun and good to do. Um, for me though, like, I think like my, my favorite science fiction in, in movies, and, and books like has that kind of, yeah, like you talked about Gibson, like that kind of cyberpunk feel, uh, to me, like two of my favorite science fiction movies are the, uh, ghost in the shell movies, like the original, um, and animated ones, the Mamoru Oshii, uh, versions, the original ghost in the shell. And then it's sequel, uh, are both, um, just beautiful and fascinating, uh, science fiction films that I, I always return to. And then as far as books go, yeah, like William Gibson, uh, we mentioned Philip K. Dick, um, but also like the J.G. Ballard uh, is also really, really, really big for me. Cool. That's an interesting. So, I mean, one thing I want to do is I'm going to Pete's making me read all of this uh, hardcore sci-fi stuff, and I'm going to make him read some stuff that's considered more literary fiction, but partakes of sci-fi. So Ballard should probably go on the list if we were to do oh, one yeah, Ballard ba novel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you, if yeah. you don't, I would recommend that Ballard short stories. Actually, like if you get one of his short story collections, I would recommend starting with the stories because, like, those are the most traditionally science fiction. Those are like you know, but uh, of his novels, I would recommend. Uh, you could start with the, the first one, The Drowned World, which is, you know, sort of uh, a prescient look at climate apocalypse. But uh, my favorite Ballard novel, hands down, is uh, High Rise. And then you can watch the movie that Ben Wheatley did of it. You know, I'm nodding at you. I'm like the worst podcaster on earth. For God's sake, nobody can see me nod, but I totally agree. You totally agree that you like Ballard? Yeah. Ah. Okay, you yeah, haven't read Ballard. <laughs> I, I I haven't read High Rise, but I love Drowned World. And then and then he did also another another really good one called The Crystal World, which is about everything drying out and crystallizing on planet Earth. And that one is if you can find it, uh, I don't know if it's in print anymore. You'll probably get a copy of it somewhere. The Crystal World, also extremely good. Cool. Uh, we're we're definitely gonna have to hit on Ballard at some point. Um, and you should definitely do a, a ghost in the shell episode, not the should be, or maybe you could even do it, uh, where you, like watch the original and then the God awful Scarlett Johansson, uh, <laughs> movie, the live action version of it. You know what? Well, she got canceled for doing that and she deserved to be, that's well, for the, for the wrong reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I think that's a good idea and, uh, we'll let you know when we do. So if you're bored that day, we'd love to talk to you again. Yeah. And yeah, like again, like the, I, I like, uh, you know, cyborg, uh, narratives in science fiction and, um, uh, you know, like there, there's a, there's a scene in, uh, uh, the first Terminator where, uh, I think there's Linda Hamilton and she loses her roommate and she has like this dumb boyfriend and both of them get killed as fuck by the Arnold. But at one point I forget it's either Linda Hamilton or her roommate is wearing a t-shirt of the Jetsons. And I thought that that was like a definitely an intentional moment uh, by Cameron that's contrasting the kind of very dark 80s you know, world that he's inhabiting, the, the, the cynical, frightening, you know, 
paranoid future that uh, the 1980s created with the, you know, gleaming perfect uh, image of what the 1980s would be like in, you know, a 1950s cartoon about like, you know, the perfect American nuclear family in the future with flying cars and robot maids and shit like that. Where it's just like, you know, Cameron's like, no, like, you know, the, the robots is just like a gleaming metal skull just on fire coming at you. Yeah, well, first of all, I would say this is another reminder that I really miss that clever James Cameron that used to that used to be out there and subtle. And uh, not only that, but like you talked about this early about like the predictions that Cyberpunk made. And aside from some of the exact technological ones, Cyberpunk, uh, the early Cyberpunk stuff, the genesis of it was pretty right about a lot of things, unfortunately. And and you know, it's because kinda, like William Gibson, when he wrote Neuromancer, you guys said like like he didn't know anything about computers at all. Yeah. Like he wasn't like a you know computer engineer. Like this was these were this was all, you know, uh works of, you know, imagination and, and you know, like so that's why something like cyberspace, um, you know, imagining computer networks as being sort of visually mediated uh was something he was able to to come up with. It was because it was just purely um an active uh, invention and and sort of literary projection. Right. And like, and I think what fascinates me and what we're going to be unpacking across the whole length of this podcast, I'm sure, is how culturally like it's it's hard to say that we've really moved on in our storytelling from cyberpunk. And that's because cyberpunk dove- dovetails with the neoliberal era that we unfortunately also yeah. cannot shake. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, one author who, who goes against that type in science fiction uh, that I would also recommend is uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Have you have you read any of him? Like Green Mars and those? Yeah, the Mars trilogy. I have not, but I guess Pete has. Yeah, yeah. It's and and honestly, anybody who tells you to read a book, we put it on the list. I am all about this. I'm not implying you're illiterate. You know what I mean? I just it, it's really cool that we're getting this this branching out of the the sci-fi because like when we start, first started, I gave you like my 20 favorite, and that's not enough. We're not trying to turn you into a clone of me. What a nightmare that would be. Yeah, I mean, this kind of started with Pete sending me a book list and being like, oh, man, I wonder if we should record some of this. And then immediately we realized we could probably only do two books a month. So if we wanted more content, we're going to have to do movies. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, thanks for your contributions, Will. Um, gosh, uh, that was a really, really fun breakdown. And I think – I don't know if Pete has anything else he wants to ask you, but I guess my last thing I would say is uh, if there's anything else you want to talk about that's in the sci-fi realm at some point, we'd love to have you back on. Well, I, you know, I'm, I am, uh, you know, now I've, uh, I think by now pretty well established myself as a, uh, a sci-fi, uh, nerd. So, you know, I'll come back, I'll talk, I'll talk Star Trek. I'll talk, um, I'll oh, talk, man. Anim- I'll talk anime. <laughs> I'll talk, you know, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you know, I'll talk, I'll talk anything, anything that, um, will get me ostracized from a cool society. Right, well, you're always welcome at our lunch table, Will. <laughs> Peter, are going to be sitting over. We're going to be sitting over here in the corner, away from all the cool politics podcasters. So, anytime you need a break, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> oh man. Well, Will, thanks so much, man. That was honestly really great, and I'm excited to put it up. Oh, um, dude, I, I, any, any, anytime. Loves to talk. Loves to talk aliens. It's 